Uh, we're in our series, Choices, Decisions That uh, Shape the Soul, and uh, we're going to be looking at some uh, different stories found in 1 Samuel, because we're transitioning now to 2 Samuel here pretty shortly. Uh, so if you want to go to 1 Samuel chapter 23, that's why, where I will be here in, in a moment. Um, Bunky Knudsen uh, was a 14-year-old high schooler. Uh, at the time, he was between his junior and senior year of high school, um, so he's a little bit ahead of the game in high school. And... Uh, and, and it was his first day of summer vacation. His dad was a fairly influential guy. William Knudsen was the, the CEO of General Motors. And uh, Bunky was surrounded by car talk, by car people, and by this sort of this car-charged atmosphere of Detroit, Michigan. Um, and he wanted a car, and he was begging his dad, uh, who was, you know, obviously, he, he had access to cars, uh, he was bug- bugging his dad to give him a car, and William Knudsen was just a little bit nervous about giving his son uh, a, a new car and, and thought maybe that might not be a good thing for him. But on this first day of summer vacation, as, uh, as Bunky Knudsen's plan for the summer uh, time off was just sort of just to coast and not really going in any particular direction, his dad called at home and Bunky answered the phone and his dad asked him, you know, Bunky, how long would it take you to get down uh, to the factory? And sort of a groggy voice, Bunky responds, as I, you know, maybe an hour or so. And his dad then says to him, well, uh, I want to give you a brand new 1927 Chevrolet. And Bunky said, I'll be there in 15 minutes. <laughs> and so he got ready and he headed down to the factory and his dad met him at the gate um, and then they walked through the gate and they walked through the factory and they walked past the factories and got to a building in the back corner of, of General Motors. And, uh, and there was this old barn-like building and it had a padlock on the sliding door. And uh, William Knudsen, uh, who had worked his way up, he was an immigrant from Denmark, had worked his way up the corporate ladder, uh, he had his keys and he unlocked the padlock and took it off and slid open that barn door and pushed his son uh, inside that, in that, that old decrepit building and flipped Flipped on the lights, and there in that barn, in that decrepit building, was a brand new 1927 Chevy in a thousand pieces <laughs> all over the floor. And William Newton said to his son, Bunky, Bunky, put that car together and it's, it's yours. And that, that little conversation altered the trajectory of Bunky's summer. He, that summer, he learned the car business. He walked back across the factory and find out how to put unconnected parts and how to connect them together and which one went with the other one. And he worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week through his summer vacation. And by the end of his summer, he had his brand new 1927 Chevy. He had this new car, but Bunky also had a very wise father. A dad who understood that character precedes privilege. A dad who understands that it's dangerous, without tested experience, it's actually dangerous to give someone privilege. Uh, and, and so, as Bunky later would write his autobiography, he would, he, would, he would become an executive in General Motors, and eventually he would become the president of Ford. And he would single out this moment when his dad slid that door open and told him he had a new car for him. He had visions of what that car would look like. But when he got pushed in, he said that moment defined him. It shaped who he would become. The moment when his dad gave him that experience. 
He had a wise father. And friends, we have a, we have a, a wise heavenly father and he does the very same thing. God understands that, that character precedes privilege. God understands that it's dangerous to be given privilege, to be given the opportunity without having our character, our hearts shaped by him. And so while God doesn't take us out in the back 40 of a, you know, a factory and open a, an old decrepit door on a decrepit building and shove us in uh, to, to put a car together, what he does do is he, he takes the padlock off, he slides that door open, and he pushes us out into the wilderness. The wilderness is one of God's favorite places, not because of what it is, but because of what it accomplishes in us when we experience life in the deserts, life in the difficult places, life in places of pain. Think about it for a moment. Look at the life of Abraham. God says, I'm going to lead you to a place that you've never been before. And, and Abraham has the faith. And he steps out. And he does everything that God has told him to do. And when he gets there, there's a famine in the land. And he has to leave that country and go down to Egypt. Think about Joseph. Joseph, who his, his, his other brothers, you know, they put him in a pit. And they sell him to slave traders. And he goes down to Egypt. He's falsely accused. And then he's put into a prison. But then he's given position, and he's the ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Uh, look at Moses. Moses, he has his own wilderness experience for 40 years, and then he goes down and he frees the slaves from Egypt, and then he wanders in the wilderness for 40 years before they go into the good land, the land of Canaan. Look at Elijah, who has this mountaintop experience. Fire comes down from heaven. It's, it's a high point. And, and, and then he's running for his life, and he's depressed, and he's discouraged, he's disillusioned, and he's living where? In the wilderness. And God comes and meets him there. 400 years of silence, and a prophet is raised up. His name is John the Baptist. And where will John the Baptist do his ministry? Where will his, where will his preaching take place? In the wilderness. When the Spirit of God baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River as he comes out, where does the Spirit of God lead Jesus in his first and early days of ministry? The wilderness. When Saul, who would become Paul, Paul who wrote much of the New Testament, when Saul is converted on the road to Damascus, shortly after he leaves Damascus, where will he spend the next three years? In the wilderness of Arabia. Are you seeing a pattern here? God, he, he understands that before you can, you can step into an opportunity, before you can enjoy maybe a certain privilege... God, before he places a person in that place of opportunity, he first prepares the person because God knows that character precedes privilege. And some of you this morning are in a wilderness. The wilderness looks a thousand different ways. Some of you are in the wilderness of unemployment. You've been trying to get a job. You've been turning in applications. You've been turned down or you're not even, not even getting a call back. And, 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 and it hurts. Some of you are in the, in the wilderness of parenting. You've, you've, you've invested your life into your kids, and, and, and maybe one of your kids is going sideways a bit, and, and you're wondering, God, where are you? Maybe some of you are in the wilderness of, of, of a marital struggle. Marriage isn't quite going the way you expected it to go. And it's a wilderness. Maybe you're living in the wilderness of a medical diagnosis. 
that, that it's just it's 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 a strain. Maybe you're in the wilderness where someone in your family is hurting. Maybe you're in the wilderness of depression. You're just living under this gray, dark cloud. Maybe you're in the wilderness of losing a loved one. See, the wilderness presents itself in so many different ways. But what often happens is we see the wilderness as God abandoning us. Where, in fact, the other thing is exact opposite is happening. Actually, God is investing in us. He's doing a beautiful work in us. It is so hard to see. And today what I want to do is I want to just look at some stories from the life of David. He's, a, he's, he's getting close to going back into the palace. You know his story. He, he's not even invited to the, the party of who will be anointed king. But, uh, but you know, Jesse, he, he calls him in and in front of his brothers, he's anointed. He's, he's young. He's anointed. And in his teenage years, he has that epic, heroic moment where he slays Goliath. The number one hit song in Israel is about him, right? Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. He's a teenager. And then he's invited to live in the palace and play music for the king. And then he marries the king's daughter. And then he becomes a general at such a young age. But then God takes his keys, unlocks the padlock, slides the door open, and pushes him into the wilderness. Because God knows that character precedes privilege. And what we want to do today is look at these wilderness lessons that David is going to learn. These 10 years, get your head around that. 10 years that David is in the wilderness wondering if he's going to live. 10 years in survival mode. David is exhausted. Some of you are exhausted. And God is teaching him wilderness lessons. Maybe one of these lessons is what God is teaching you. Maybe none of them apply to you. But perhaps today, this would be the, the sort of the, the impetus to the beginning of a journey where you could ask God, what's this for? I find that when I'm in the wilderness, my, my most common question is, God, why? I don't think it's wrong to ask that question, but perhaps a better question is, what's this for? So what I want to do is just dive into some of these stories. 1 Samuel chapter 23 is the first one I want to look at. Um, you'll find it. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, page 472, you will see this uh, story. I'm not going to dive deeply into each of these stories because I just wanted to extract the lesson that God is teaching David um, in, in the wild. Uh, chapter 23, this is the, 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 the story where David is protecting a town called Kela. Um, now, now, David... Uh, David was in the palace, and he had a very clear job description as a general. When the enemy attacks, you defend. You defeat the enemy. You push back injustice. But David is now a fugitive. He's no longer the general. And my guess is if that song is played in your house that was the number one hit a while back, you're in trouble with Saul. And, and what's common in the wilderness is that you, you lose. Everything is foggy. You, the clear roles you had before are gone, and you don't know what to do. And this is David in this situation. He hears the Philistines are attacking. They're stealing grain from the village of Kela. And so in, in the days that he had the job description in the palace, he knew exactly what to do. You get out there with your soldiers, and you beat back and defeat the Philistines. But now he's a fugitive, and he's wondering, what do I do? What's my role here, God? 
So we pick, pick up some of the story uh, in, in chapter 23, verse 1. It says, One day news came to David that the Philistines were at Calah stealing grain from the threshing floors. David asked the Lord, Should I go and attack them? Yes, go and save Calah, the Lord told him. But David's men said, We're afraid even here in Judah. We certainly don't want to go to Calah to fight the whole Philistine army. So David asked the Lord again, and again the Lord replied, Go down to Calah, for I will help you conquer the Philistines. David is, is asking God, God, what do I do? I, I'm in the wilderness. I, I knew what I should have done before, but now I, I don't know my role. And God says, go and, and save the citizens of Calah. And David apparently rallies the men, and they're going to go do this. But the men are like, they're like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. We're, our lives are in danger here in Judah. We have Saul's army to worry about. And now you want to pick a fight with another army. And the guys are like, this, this, they're, they're too afraid. So David is questioning himself, goes back to God and asks again. And God says, yes, I want you to go save the people of Calah. And so they muster up enough faith, enough strength, and they go, and they go to rescue. David goes to rescue the people of Calah. And he's successful. He slaughters the Philistines. But when he's in Calah, Saul, who has informants around the land, who has spies around the land, hears that David is in Calah and, and sees this as a moment of opportunity to trap him in, in the city, behind these city walls. And so Saul is, is, is preparing to attack David after he's had this great victory. So what does David do? He inquires of the Lord. God, should I stay here? Will I be safe here? Or should I go? Will the, 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 will the leaders of Caleb betray me? And God says to him, they will betray you. It's time to go. You get, need to see this. Saul has access to information. He has his spies. He has his informants. Saul has access to information. David has access to the Lord. And early on in the wilderness, the lesson that God is teaching David is simply... It's simply this. We'll put it up on the screen. People of action must first be people of prayer. David is a man of action. He, he, he gets the job done. I mean, he's, in, he's a teenager, and, uh, and you got this giant who's defying God in the armies of Israel, and he's like, I'll take him on. He, he's a man of action. He's a quick trigger. He gets stuff done. But what God is teaching him in the wilderness is that before you go with your gut reaction... Before you go with your, with your, your intuition or your, your sort of your gut uh, on, on a decision, talk to me. And so God is teaching him this early on in the wilderness. In fact, when we get to 2 Samuel and you see David in the palace, his highest moments are those moments where you read, David inquired of the Lord, and David inquired of the Lord, and David inquired of the Lord. He, he's a listener. And if you want to see his lowest moments, just read the stories where he acted impulsively, when he went to satisfy his own appetites, when he did what was right in his own eyes. That, that's where he had his biggest disasters. That's where the wheels came off. And prayer, friends, prayer is an act of dependence. If you want to know if you're living an independent life from God, just look at how much you pray. Because when things are going well, when you're living in the palace, prayer is a luxury. But when you're in the desert, prayer is water. It's, it's water. It's, it's an oasis. 
It's where you're crying out to God. So one of the very first lessons that David is learning is simply people of action must first be people of prayer. First Samuel chapter 25, go over a couple pages to this next story. We'll get the second wilderness lesson. We looked at the story uh, several weeks ago. It's the story of Nabal. Nabal is the fool. If you remember the story, he's insulted David. Um, again, I don't, I don't have time just to dive too deeply into this passage, but he's insulted David. David's protected uh, the, the, the herds, the, 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 you know, the, the fields, and Nabal has a great harvest, but he's hoarding it. And so David is insulted, and he is ticked off, and he's got 400 men with swords strapped on, and they're going to where Nabal lives, and they're gonna, he's going to wipe out every person in that village. Every male in that village is going to die. He's committed He's told his 400 guys he's going, and, and he feels he has a, a, just, uh, a, a just reaction, a response here. Notice that there's no inquiring of the Lord. Sometimes God teaches you a lesson. It doesn't mean you, 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 you apply it right away. This is one of those moments where he's going with his gut. He's ticked off. He wants revenge. And then, if you remember the story, he's intercepted. He's intercepted by someone whose voice in that day and in that culture would have been minimized. You would not listen to this voice. This voice happens to be the voice of a woman. It's Nabal's wife. She intercepts David and keeps him from, from going to, to commit this, uh, this, this, this travesty. If you remember, what she said to him was basically, she said, consider the source, consider your options, David, and consider your future. You're about to put your destiny as king over Israel. You're about to put that all in jeopardy. And, and here's what God does when we're, when we're in the wilderness and when we're headed down a path that's going to destroy us, when we're going down a road that's going to bring us harm. We think we have all the right reasons to do what we're about to do, but what God does is he intercepts us with grace. He sends the Abigails to us in life and gives us these off-ramps of grace if we have the humility to listen. You see, if you're stubborn, if you're not teachable, if you feel like, well, I've already, I mean, I've already got the guys with the sword strapped on. We've got 400 horses. So am I supposed to go back there and tell them I listen to you? I mean, he, he's committed, but with humility, David rejoices that Abigail has intercepted him before he's made his big flaw, which exposes this wilderness lesson that God is teaching David. It's simply this, people of power must be people of humility, or people of position must be people of humility. One of the attributes, one of the character traits that God is most drawn to is humility. The book of Isaiah, it says that the, this, this is the one whom I esteem. The one who is broken in spirit and contrite in heart. Because of David's humility, he avoids disaster. But what has to happen in the wilderness is we have to be stripped of our pride. The wilderness is a place where we're stripped of many things, a lot of our comforts, and most certainly we're stripped of our pride because God is breaking us, and it hurts. Years ago, um, this, this first time it happened because it continues to happen, um, I, I, was, I was working for United Parcel Service. Some of you know this, this story. 
Um, and Shreen and I decided to move, to leave San Francisco. That's where I was working. I was climbing the corporate ladder, and uh, life was good. And we just sensed God was calling us to move on, and we're going to move back to Oregon. We had two daughters at the time, and we wanted to raise a family in a, in just in a, in a, in a different environment. So we moved to Hood River, Trina's hometown, and uh, I quit my job and you know, kind of stopped climbing that ladder, but I was certain I'd be able to get a job in Oregon. I mean, who wouldn't want to hire me? Um, and I just put my resume together, and I got to, to Hood River, and I was sending my resume out, and I got called in for some interviews with some other companies in that same industry, and, um, and I fully expected that they'd see my resume, and they'd say, man, this, we can't let this guy out of our office. Um, and and they, they did, and I walked out of the office. I was like, unbelievable, and I didn't get a call back. No second interview, no first interview. And this went on for weeks. We were living with our in-laws, and it, you know, I told them it'd be a couple weeks, and we'd be out, we in our own place, and, um, and the couple weeks grew to a couple months, and then grew to like three months, and, um, and man, it, was, it started getting tough. Uh, it got tough financially. And so um, I started applying for jobs that had nothing to do with my experience. In fact, it got so brutal, uh, so difficult, that um, I just, that, you know, we'll just apply for anything. So Trina was applying for jobs too, and we both applied at the same company, and they chose her. <laughs> Some of you understand why. <laughs> but I'll tell you something, that hurt. I remember laying in bed and I going, God, what are you doing? stinks. And I just felt helpless. And looking back, now, now I, I see what God was doing. He's stripping me of all kinds of pride, this stench of self-confidence. And, he, and I got to the point where I, I just started praying. I said, I said to God, I will do anything. And so I was down at the unemployment office. There was a new startup company in the Columbia Gorge. Uh, it, was, it was a company that was, it was a porta potty company. And um, they were looking for someone that would grow the, you know, grow the company with them. And um, I had been talking to another company. It was a fishing tackle company, but they were kind of slow. And, um, and, and then this other company's porta potty business, um, the, the guy wanted to hire me. And so he said, I, you know, on a Friday, sat me down and said, I, I want you to be a business partner with me. But it means probably several years of driving a truck around and, um, and cleaning up porta potties. And at that point in time, I was like, I, I, remember, I remember praying and saying to God, God, if you want me to suck poop for the rest of my life, I'm your man. And I know if you do that for a living, I admire you beyond. <laughs> I mean, it, I, but that was where I was, I was like, Trina just wasn't into germs. And I was like, hey, if that's, if that's the call of God on my life. If I'm going to drive around and clean up after, after the people, so be it. And the Monday I was going to call and accept the job, I called this other company and tell them I was going to take the job, and they asked me to come down and, and, and work for them. And um, Trina calls it an off-ramp of grace. <laughs> <laughs> but God had to get me to a point. He had to strip me of pride. Friends, some of you are in that place right now. He's just stripping stuff off of you, and it hurts. People of power, people of position, and it really isn't even about power position, but before you get that next opportunity, we must be people of humility. 
Last wilderness lesson you'll find in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Some of you were in, this, in your Bible studies this past week. This is a story. Brian talked about how, how David went down to the Philistine territory. He was running for his life, and so he thought he'd be safe down there. Again, I don't have time to go through this story. I would encourage you to go back and read these stories. These are really important stories to read. But they've come back to Ziklag. Ziklag is home base for David and his 600 warriors. And when he comes back, what they discover is you kind of picture a village that the smoke is sort of smoldering in the air. There's been a raid. The Amalekites, remember the Amalekites? These are the people that Saul was supposed to wipe out. Where Samuel comes up to him and says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul did not, he didn't fully obey. Now David has come back to home base and the village has been burnt to the ground. All the kids, all the wives have been kidnapped. All possessions are taken. And this is the deepest, darkest night of the soul for David. And ironically, what David doesn't know is that he is hours. He's literally just days away from the pathway leading back into the palace. In in about a day, Saul will fall on his sword on Mount Gilboa. And David will leave the wilderness. But he's been in the wilderness 10 years, and it's right near the end is his darkest moment when when all has been taken from him and his men. And in verse 3, it says, When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. And some of you have been there, where there's not even another tear. You don't have enough liquid in your body to produce a tear. You are exhausted in mourning. It's a dark night. And whenever there's a crisis like this, people are looking for someone to blame. So David's 600 men are looking at him and saying, it's your fault, David. It's a crisis in leadership. Someone has to take the fall for this, and it's David. He got us into this mess. We've been in this wilderness for a decade. He has to pay. I mean, I'm willing to suffer for so long, but this is beyond my limits. And they're picking up stones, and they're going to kill David. They're going to execute him. And and, and then in the end of verse 6, you get this mysterious phrase. It says, "But, but David found strength in the Lord his God. This chapter doesn't tell us how that happens, but read the Psalms. Just read the Psalms that David wrote. If you want to find how to find strength in the wilderness, for those who were there, Read the Psalms. Read the prayer journals of David. David strengthens himself in the Lord, and then he goes again. He inquires of the Lord, God, what should I do? Can I recover these these family members? Can I I restore my, my possessions? And God says, go. And so David, he listens, he obeys. He's a person of action, but he's prayed first. And so he's heading out, and it just so happens that as they're going out, they stumble across an Egyptian slave who used to be a slave for the Amalekites, and he's, being, he's left for dead there in the wilderness. David and his men revive him, and they get all the inside information of where the Amalekites are camped and where they're celebrating. And, and so the, the men keep, continue to push on, but in 200 of them are exhausted because they've just come out of Philistine territory. They've discovered that, you know, their, their possessions and their family have been kidnapped and uh, this horrible situation. They are emotionally exhausted. They are physically exhausted. And so 200 men say they can't go any farther, but 400 do. They stop at the brook of Basor, which, by the way, the Hebrew word Basor means good news. It means it, it can be translated gospel. 200 men left there, 400 keep going, and they know exactly where to attack, and they do attack even though they're outnumbered. There's 400 men with David, 
and 400 of the Amalekites escape on camels, but the rest of them are slaughtered, and David recovers all the families. He recovers his wives and everyone's wives. No, no, one, is, no one is harmed. And it's a great victory, and they're coming back. And as they come back to where these 200 men are at, there's some troublemakers among the 400. And what they're saying is basically this. Hey, these guys can have their kids and their wives back, but that's it. They don't get a share in the plunder. Because you know what? I worked hard for this. I was the one who produced the sweat. I was the one who had a sword in my hand. These guys did nothing. They just sat by a brook. They were sleeping on the job. We did all the hard work. They should not get a share in the plunder. And listen to David's response. David said, no, my brothers, verse 23, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and helped us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We share and share alike, those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. From then on, David made this a decree and a regulation for Israel, and it is still followed today. When he arrived at Ziklag, David sent part of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends. Here is a present for you, taken from the Lord's enemies. He said, even those who did none of the work get to share in the blessings of the victory. Does that not sound like the gospel? We share in the plunders of victory. Christ went to the cross. This is a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. And yet there's these guys saying, no one else should get it because we did the hard work. And isn't it the most miserable thing when you see someone who's got great blessing because it's come from God? It's how miserable is the person who is the hoarder? How miserable is the one who does not recognize that it is God who has given the gift to them? And instead of sharing the plunder, instead of caring for the family, what they do is they bring it all in and how miserable that person is, but how blessed is the one. How blessed is the one who recognizes that it's not about them. David gets this. Again, realize he's hours away from going back to the palace. This is shaping who he will be as a leader in Israel. Here's his wilderness lesson. It's simply this, people of accomplishment remember whose it is. David understands, it's not my hard work, it's not my sweat, it's not how fast I swung the blade. God gave us the victory. And so I'm not gonna hoard the plunder. I'm, I'm not gonna say I did it. Everyone shares in the spoils of victory. People of accomplishment remember whose it is. And they glorify the God who helps us overcome the enormous odds of whatever situation we're facing. 10 years in the wilderness, and little does David know, and in the darkest night, in the deepest crisis in the wilderness, he's just hours away from the whole wilderness being done. But he doesn't know. And you don't know. I don't know. Years ago, I had the privilege of being in Berlin, speaking at the Berlin International Church. And before I spoke on the weekend, I was taken around in town and shown some of the historical sites. And I was taken to 
a church. It's called the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church. It's a pretty magnificent church back in the day. But if you know, in World War II, much of Berlin was firebombed and much of the city was destroyed. Um, and there are remnants of that church that still exist, that still have the burn marks. And before the war, there was this beautiful stained glass that was inside the worship center. Beautiful scenes from, the, from Bible stories. But in World War II, when the bombs were dropped, the, the, the church was reduced to rubble and stones and broken shards of glass just littered the streets and littered the property. When Berlin was being rebuilt, the church also would be rebuilt. And instead of getting rid of, uh, of the glass, what the, what the builders decided to do was to collect all those broken fragments of glass and to create little miniature panes of glass with the broken shards. So they created all these little broken windows. And from the outside looking in, it, it actually looks just kind of, uh, it's not that pretty. But when you get inside the sanctuary and when the sun is shining through that broken shards of glass that have been all put back together to create these little window panes, literally millions of these pieces of glass just reflecting a beauty. Here's a picture from inside the church of what it looks like. You can see each of those little square window panes and each one made up of sometimes dozens of little broken pieces of glass. Friends, Sometimes your life feels like it's in a million pieces. Sometimes you feel like your life is shattered. Sometimes it feel like, feels like there's not a future. But God is still in the business of taking broken people and doing beautiful things with them and restoring them. He's a wise dad and he understands that character precedes privilege. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. He is not ignoring you. He's with you. Whether it's 10 days or 10 years, he is the God who loves and cares for you. And this morning, what I want to do is take some time just to pray for you, for those who find themselves in this place called the wilderness. And I want to, I want to do it this way. I, I would love for if you, if you're in that difficult place, if, if you're in that, you know, God's teaching you lessons, maybe it's one of those lessons, maybe it's the beginning of a journey where you're going to discover what that lesson is. I, I just want to invite you to stand right where you're at, if, if that's you. If you find yourself in a desert today, if you find yourself in a place of pain, thank you for, for standing, for that courage. It takes, it takes humility to stand up and say, I'm, in a, I'm, I'm hurting. I'm in a place of pain. If that's you, we, we want to pray for you. We, we want, we've all been there. And, and who knows, we, we could be there again. But when you're there, it, you, you feel alone. You are asking yourself the question, God, what did I do? How did, how did I screw up? You're not in the wilderness necessarily because you did anything wrong. It's just God doing a, a deep work in you. And it it's, It hurts. Now, if you see someone standing right now, in just a couple more seconds, if you feel your heart pounding, that God's talking to you. Stand up. Let's just, let's just pray. If you see someone standing up who's in a place of pain, would you just go stand with them? Someone you know. Just go stand with them. You can walk all the way across the room. You can walk down from the balcony if you recognize someone. That, that's permissible. Just move around the room. 
And, and would you stand with them? And if you see someone standing and no one is with them, will you go with them? And would you begin praying? And would you do us all the favor of, of don't pray solutions. Don't, don't pray solutions. Just pray comfort, God's presence, his love. Just begin praying right now, and then I'll close this. I want to just declare some things over you from God's word. Those of you who are not standing or not around someone, you can pray too. Just pray for mercy. Pray for compassion. Now I want to declare these words over you. I want you to hear these words as if they are from God right to you. Because you've already been prayed for. You're being prayed for now. You were prayed for this week before you even walked in this place. And I listened, and here's, here's what I believe God would say to you this morning. I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I want you to hear this again. I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. I want to read that one again for you. God is saying to you, I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. The wild animals in the fields will thank me, jackals and owls too, for giving them water in the desert. People will be blessed through you. Again, hear God's heart for you today. Yes, I will make rivers in the dry wasteland so my chosen people, that's you, so my chosen sons and daughters can be refreshed. Now, Spirit of living God, would you do that very thing? Refresh your saints. Refresh. Renew. Help these dear ones, Lord, to be able to discern now that pathway you're making. Comfort them in their time of sorrow. Strengthen them in their weakness. Thank you that you are with us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.